If you're able to, I ask you to stand for the honor, in the honor of the reading of God's word. We do this because we believe this is holy scripture. I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 25, verse 14 to 30, the parable of the talents, sometimes called the parable of the three servants. Here now is the word of the Lord. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his money. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, singing, Master, you delivered to me five talents here, and I have five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him by saying, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to he who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, will be, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, not even what he has, or even what he has, will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant in the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Please be seated. It's not exactly one of the more positive, touchy-feely comments in all of Scripture. This parable of the talents is one that is speaking to a number of issues that many of us face. This morning we're going to try to unpack this and look under the hood, so to speak. We're going to seek its full meaning and application. In this section of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is bringing what we might consider to be warnings. They are prophecies, but they're also encouragements. He's speaking to his people prior to when he goes to the cross. In this particular parable, he speaks of a man who tells his staff he's leaving for an undisclosed period of time. He's essentially delegating to these three men the responsibility as stewards to care for his funds and his properties. However, this has pretty broad application to us today. It's pointing us to what at the time was the future event of Jesus ascending back to his heavenly father, but returning one again someday. The question for us will be whether we've been good stewards of what he's given to us. Now, Jesus emphasizes the weight of that responsibility and the serious consequences of neglecting to understand and apply this teaching. It mattered to people 2,000 years ago. This should matter to us today. But before we move ahead, 
let's touch base briefly on something I mentioned somewhat in the previous message on the parables. Let's again remind ourselves, what is a talent? What is a talent? During the biblical times, it had two different uses. One of them was used to describe how much gold the Israelites used when they built the uh, tabernacle. That's in the Old Testament. It was just a way of measuring precious metals. A talent weighed about 75 pounds. In the New Testament, however, it had a different application. It came from a Greek word, talenton, obviously is where the English derivative comes from. It was a large monetary measurement. It was equal to what was called 6,000 denarii. The Romans, remember, they were ruling over Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, so their minted currency is what was in use. A single denarius was a silver Roman coin. It was equal to one day's wage. So if one denarius was what you could earn in one day, you would need to work 6,000 days to earn one talent. Five talents was therefore 30,000 days of work. All I can say is that's a lot of days worked. That's a lot of money. And given that amount of money, it seems reasonable to say that the master who was traveling to a far country was a wealthy man. And he entrusts his wealth to these three men to be stewards of his funds. One of them he gives five talents, the value of more than an entire lifetime of wages. Another receives two talents, the value of you know, more or less 30 years worth of wages. The third steward receives one talent, 16 or so years worth of wages. So in other words, even the third man who only received one talent was still placed in charge of a huge amount of money. Each man is told to properly manage the funds, and the amount given is based on each man's ability. The first two understand the instructions well. They also understand the character and the temperament of their master. They make wise decisions, and they double their master's money. The third man, however, through fear and mistrust, buries it in the ground, and he returns the original amount to the master when he comes home from being away. The men who invested the money wisely are praised and given increased responsibilities. The untrusting steward is scolded, rejected, even punished. You might say it's quite a stark contrast. But for a proper application of the parable, we have to understand it within the context of the broader message here of Matthew 24 and 25. It's a message to people who will be alive in the last days before Christ returns. And in this sense, remember, it's a parable. The three people are not real people, but its application is very real. Each of us have been given specific skills and giftings. We're to use these to serve God and grow his kingdom by being salt and light in whatever setting he places us. Now, Matthew 24, 13 has a passage that refers to, well, I'll just read it to you. It says, but he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. The idea is we are to keep on keeping on. We endure to the end of our lives, and the Holy Spirit, who is the one who calls us to believe, he will persevere our faith and preserve our faith. The application to the people of Israel at the time, and to us today, is, I think, highly relevant the idea is that those who believe and are faithful are rewarded not only with the kingdom, but in the kingdom. Those who do not believe will not have that benefit. They will not have that blessing. Now, what I would like to do is take a, a very brief rabbit trail at, as I often do. I want to talk about these rewards 
in heaven. There's a lot of misunderstanding about this. If we aren't careful, these can be confused with something that almost sounds like a a works-based salvation, but that's not really what they're about. The Bible does mention rewards in heaven on numerous occasions, like Matthew 5, Luke 6, and Luke 35, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 9. You might ask, well, why are rewards in eternity necessary? Wouldn't just experiencing Christ in person and the joys of being there be so amazing? Why would we need any extra rewards? And since our faith is based on Christ and his merit, that's Romans 3, verse 21 to 26, it can seem confusing. Our works would bring any kind of a reward. This is why we need to understand that when God gives rewards in heaven, this takes place at an event that's referred to as the judgment seat of Christ, sometimes called the the Bema seat. This is for those who are believers in Jesus Christ, the the elect, as the Apostle Paul would refer to them. 2 Corinthians 5.10 speaks of this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in the body according to what they have done, whether it be good or bad. These rewards demonstrate the reality that we've been adopted in Christ as adopted sons and daughters of the Father. Galatians 4.7 Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, an heir of God through Christ. But remember, these rewards also reflect something. They reflect God's justice. Galatians 4, 7. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, an heir of God through Christ. But when you compare it to Hebrews 6, 10, for God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. That's the classic King James wording. What it's really talking about is that God rewards faithfulness. And yet, the people who are faithful are those who are the believers. They are sometimes called the believing remnant. But another reason God will give rewards in heaven is what's called the law of sowing and reaping. Galatians 6, verse 7 to 9, I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation. Says, don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. Classic translation says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. It goes on to say, you will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sin nature will harvest decay and death from that nature. Those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Even another reason, Galatians 2.20, Paul describes it. He says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The idea here is that our lives are now in Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God the Father. The rewards that we gain in heaven are not like the rewards here on earth. I think we tend to think of them like material things, that if you work hard and do well in life, you might have nicer homes and a better car and a certain amount of local fame and a certain amount of wealth. But you see, these things are symbols. These are symbols. Uh, One of the sources that I read when I was putting this message together talks about the way that a child who wins a contest of some kind treasures the trophy that he or she receives 
not because of the trophy, but because of what it means. Likewise, any reward or you know, honor that we might gain in heaven is precious to us because it carries the weight and the meaning of our relationship with Christ. It reminds us of what he did and what he did through us during our lives. Another writer worded it this way. He said, we're like characters in a story. We suffer doubt, loss, fear. We wonder if we're ever going to have what our heart most desires. In the story, when the happy ending comes and that's fulfilled, there's a sense of completion. God's story would not be satisfying without that sense of completion. So rewards in heaven are the completion of our earthly story, but unlike earthly rewards, they will be eternally satisfying. So that's the, the matter of rewards in heaven. It's captured in that phrase, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. So let's now return to the parable with that rabbit trail having been completed. Please consider how each of us have been entrusted with different levels of resources, different levels of wealth, but with time, years. We have different levels of years in our lives. It's important we remember that everything we have comes from God and belongs to God, and we're responsible for using these resources so they'll increase in value. I mean, both in terms of material, yes, but more so in a spiritual sense. A healthy believer has a desire to grow and to learn. Somebody that I would call a static Christian is not there yet. They are saved and a born-again believer by their faith, but at the same time, it's God's desire that they grow in their faith and that they learn more. But let's look at another consideration this morning. It's from the Gospel of Luke. Let's call it a parallel parable. I had to rehearse that several times to get that to roll off the tongue. It's called the parable of the ten minas. In this parallel parable, Jesus' point is that the kingdom was not going to appear immediately. The parable says there would be a period of time during which the, the king is absent before his kingdom is fully established. We live in that time today. Some people call it the church age. People for the last 2,000 years have been in that time. This is the time period that some theologians refer to by a phrase. They say, already and not yet. The kingdom is here today and that the Holy Spirit is with us, and yet we're not fully in place because we're still awaiting Christ's return to complete everything that was prophesied way back in Genesis 3. And I might add, we just studied Genesis 3 with our teens this last Wednesday night. In Luke 19, the parable of the ten minas talks about a nobleman who leaves, but he's one day going to return as king. The servants are those who the king charges with the task to manage the kingdom during his absence. These servants represent us as Jesus' believers. We need to realize that as Christians, we have, we have what arguably is the most valuable resource of all. We have God's word. And if we believe what it says and we understand it and apply it as good stewards of the faith he's given to us, we will be a blessing to others. The value of what we do over time is multiplied. So in this sense, we're accountable to God for how we use the unique gifts and skills he's given to us. It's one reason we're taught to not store up our treasures here in this life. Invest heavily in efforts to teach others about eternity. But again, let me remind us, our place in eternity is not earned by anything that we do. 
Our rewards in heaven are not brownie points with God. They're just one way in which he keeps his promises to those who believe. And we do these things not in order to be saved. We do them because we have been saved. By God's grace, through Christ's blood, to God's glory, by faith alone, based on the teaching of Scripture alone. And some of you may recognize those as the five solas, and I will actually be bringing you a future message on those at some point. Well, this is the point we get ready to wrap up this message, so there's just one more thing. We are a people who have been saved by God's grace. We've been spared a terrible eternity separated from him. Instead, we've been promised a wonderful place, and it's an amazing gift because it is all of his grace, not of our works. So I ask us to question this morning, and yes, this is a rhetorical question, but I'm going to ask it because we all need to be reminded of it, me too. What's the best way to use the giftings that God's given to us? So among those giftings are the resources of time, the years of our life. Should we be bickering with fellow Christians over small details, causing strife with fellow believers over matters that both sides would agree are not related to eternity, over personal preference and tradition? Is, is that what the Holy Spirit calls us to do? Or should we focus on the harsh reality that while we are bickering with fellow believers, there are people that we know and love that as near as we can tell, if they were to die today, they will face eternity separated from God unless the Holy Spirit moves mightily in their lives. Which of those two things do you think is pleasing to God? Bickering with one another over essentially penny-ante issues or fighting our common enemy who seeks to devour us? I think we all know the answer to that rhetorical question. The challenge is making it happen. We've been for the last year and a half, well, it's more than that, I would say um, two and a half years. First Union has been in a time of relative peace and healing and getting along with one another and keeping our eyes on the right place. For many, many, many years, First Union did that. Okay? You hit a rough patch for a while. And I want to suggest to you is that the root cause of it is too many got their eyes on the wrong things. When God heals, there's still the scar that's there. I'm not going to show it to you, but I have a lot of scars in my left ankle after that incident a few years ago. And I've got a lot of metal in that ankle. It's healed. I can walk again. But every now and then it jolts me. It reminds me that it isn't quite like it never happened. But one day it will be. In this sense, our relationships with one another are like that. It isn't like the strife never happened, but one day it will be. We need to be looking at that one day, and we need to be looking at helping others to see that one day. And until Christ returns, that's our task. And if I may be so bold, our task is absolutely not to be attempting to predict the date of his return. There are some people that get so hung up over that one. You know the biggest problem with that? is they're basically claiming to know something that even Jesus himself said he didn't know. That's pretty arrogant.
Let me ask you this. When you're driving down the car and you're heading to a destination, if you're primarily looking in the rearview mirror, I don't think you're going to get there. We need to keep our eyes ahead. We need to keep our eyes on Christ. We need to know that he is large and in charge. And on this Mission Sunday, we need to keep in mind that our focus needs to be outward. Who can we serve? Who can we help show the love of Christ with? Who can we shine the light into their lives? And how can we help one another to do that? I think that's one of the best applications of this parable. It does remind us that God gives us gifts and skills according to what he believes to be our ability. He wasn't unfair in giving one guy only one talent and another one five. The person who he gave one was still a massive amount of money to take care of. He just made poor decisions. What kind of decisions are we making with the giftings that he's given to us? So I'm going to ask us to go to silent prayer for just a moment and ask you to consider that question, and then we'll close our service. Let's just go to silent prayer.